Luke 6, verses 27 through 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Devin. Church, you may have a seat. Well, good morning. How are we doing this morning? Good? Good morning. Good, good. Uh, can't believe it's Thanksgiving week. How is this already here? It's wild. I can't believe it. It snuck up on me this year. It's, uh, how is it? November. It's crazy. Um, well, if you've been with us, you know that we've been journeying through Luke's gospel. Uh, last week was a difficult one. As we grapple through these Beatitudes, this week is no different. We just heard the word red. And these are some difficult statements that Jesus is making for us as Christ followers, for his disciples. Remember, Jesus is preaching this sermon. Uh, He has gathered his disciples. He's gathered the crowds that are around him who have heard about Jesus and all of the signs and wonders that he's done. And he's preaching essentially uh, what you could describe as a four-part sermon. And he's really describing for them uh, a few different things. One thing in particular that he's leaning into with his disciples in these words that we've heard uh, just read for us is how do we live as kingdom citizens? How do we as followers of Christ live as citizens of this new kingdom that Jesus, the Son of God, is ushering in? And so he is preparing his disciples for what lies ahead, and he's preparing you and I for what it means to live as kingdom citizens, as disciples of Christ. And Jesus' call here that we just heard read, to love our enemies is one of the most challenging passages possibly in the Bible. Um, If we're honest, just sitting here right now today, a lot of us, probably all of us could raise our hand. I'm not going to make you do it because it would be, we'd all be a little bit embarrassed. We find it difficult to love our friends all the time, right? I mean, I'm a pastor. Half of my dialogue with all of you is church conflict and things like, we find it difficult to love just the people who we love who are around us all the time, right? 
We find it hard to love our neighbors at times. So this call, this radical call to love your enemies is so strange to us. Um, But this whole sermon, remember, that Jesus is preaching is about how shall we live now as citizens of the king and his new kingdom that he is ushering in. Um, Now, I want us to stop real quick and I want to just remind you that these words that Jesus is speaking, these words that Jesus is unpacking for us are not how we enter into the kingdom of heaven. This isn't how do you get to heaven? How do you get into the kingdom of heaven? That was preached earlier in Luke's gospel. Uh, If you remember Jesus' first sermon in Luke chapter 4 as he's preaching in the synagogue that we enter by grace, by grace alone, that Jesus has come to uh, set captives free, to liberate the oppressed. And so we know that we are saved by grace. And now Jesus is leaning in as he's gathering his disciples, as he's gathering this new community of people that will live on these new kingdom principles. Luke 6 gives us the foundation for how we as Christians are to live now in the kingdom now that we have received the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the ways that he is helping us and that he is Um, tilling up the soil of our hearts and our souls is that we are to live lives marked by radical love, by generosity, by mercy. Um, And we're being taught here how to love the world, how to love the people around us, how to love our friends, our neighbors, and yes, even our enemies just the same way that God has loved us. This is what Jesus is leaning into. God's love for the world is a wildly radical love. It is a radical love. Now, uh, before, I, before we jump into this, there, I could, there could be 10 sermons preached on all that we just read. There's so much to unpack. I want to clear the runway, so to speak, a little bit. I want to say up front that this passage raises a lot of questions. If you were listening to that read and you're thinking to yourself, I have so many questions about the implications of that. Yes, this passage raises a tremendous amount of questions that it doesn't answer. And we need the entirety of the scriptures to answer a lot of the questions that were just posed in this section that we unfortunately don't have time to unpack all of the implications of. But I do believe that Jesus is sort of leaning in uh, to a few things. But uh, just to speak clearly about a couple of those things, to clear the runway, for instance, Uh, I'll just say up front, it is right and it is good to report someone who assaults you, okay? So when we just read those things about um, loving your enemy, loving even the one that assaults you, it is okay uh, to report someone who has assaulted you. It is okay to practice self-defense. It is okay to do justice and to, in fact, to even to act with compassion in a lot of instances, as the Lord spells out, means that we must report cases of abuse and those who are doing the abusing and to bring justice to those people who are maligning other people and abusing other people. Now, Jesus is not addressing these issues 
uh, nor is he addressing uh, issues about the proper or right response of the force of the government or law enforcement or even military. There's been a lot of people that have made those distinctions that say this is what he's talking about. It's across the board. Um, but how do we know that? How do we get maybe a window that Jesus isn't talking about law enforcement, military, and our response to uh, those types of actions? Well, earlier in Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist, for example, speaks to a soldier. Uh, and he doesn't tell him to resign. He tells him to behave in a particular way. And so what Jesus is speaking about here is, is I think as best as we can frame it here so that we understand the context in that Jesus is talking because he is speaking to a people in a place in a specific context. He is telling and teaching his disciples these, these sermons, these, these principles, these ideas of how they are to respond in their following of Christ when oppression comes their way. That's the context that he's talking about. When these disciples, you remember the last couple weeks we've talked about this, that he was giving a full disclosure. Blessed are the poor, the hungry, those who persecute you on account of me. He's preparing them for the life that they're going to lead as disciples. And so here again, he's doubling down and he's helping them understand as a citizen of King Jesus, this is the way that you are to live your life when opposition comes your way as a fellow minister of the gospel. This is what he's leaning into here. And we need to see the heart behind all of these illustrations that Jesus unpacks here and all that he gives. We need to see them as being especially relevant in cases of persecution. Because that's the context that he's preparing his disciples and his followers for. Um, remember, Jesus speaks, he, he begins this whole thing in chapter 6, verse 20. He says he lifts up his eyes to the disciples. So he's teaching the disciples and he tells them the great cost that would be involved in following him. He's preparing them for what lies ahead. But he also reminds them of their great reward. He also reminds them of their great reward that is theirs when found in him. And, it's, and it, it culminated in the great promise that those who are persecuted for his namesake uh, will, will have all that they need in him. And then he flips the whole thing on its head and he talks about those that are living for themselves instead of the kingdom. And it's in that spirit, it's in that context, it's right off of those heels that he then talks about loving our enemies. That those who are going out into the world with the gospel will be opposed for following Jesus and standing on his kingdom and his way and his rule. And he's teaching us, and he's teaching his followers then how we are to respond then to those who bring about opposition, who disagree, who don't like it, and who are in fact enraged by it. How do we love the enemies of the gospel? Um, how do we love those who are enemies of the gospel? I think that's the most pointed application here in the context that Luke is speaking to, or that Jesus, rather that Jesus is speaking to in the text, is how do we, how do his disciples, and in turn, 
you and I deal with outsiders in the unbelieving world that may be opposed to Christianity, that may be opposed to the gospel, and Jesus then tells us very clearly, verse 27, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Love your enemies. This is the first use of love in Luke's gospel that is in the verb form. This is the first time the verb love shows up in Luke's gospel. It's the word agape. And it's the same kind of love, it's the same word that God uses in the love, uh, the sacrificial love that Jesus shows to you and I that he would die on a cross for us. The sacrificial agape love. So this, Luke uses this word on purpose. The first use of the verb form of love is challenges us to our very core in that we would love our enemies. Um, this is very challenging. Because um, this word and this challenge and this idea of love for you and I as Christ followers needs to land on us just like it landed on his disciples then. Um, <coughs> we live in a very angry culture, angry society. We live in a world where uh, the cultural waters we swim in is everyone shames their enemies. Everyone cancels their enemies. Everyone doesn't, everyone dismisses their enemies. Everyone maligns their enemies. Everyone talks about wanting to get in a physical altercation against their enemies. Um, We don't even sometimes represent our enemies' viewpoints fairly because we think that that would help us win our argument against our enemies. So we twist words and we create tribes and we create these little places. And Jesus says something incredibly radical here as he says, love them. Now, it's not an abstract love. It's not like, hey, just love them. It's not like this this sort of weird, abstract, kind of choose how you want that to look and go. It's not an abstract word. He gives us deeds, words, and prayers. He shows us how we're to love them. He's so merciful. He's like, well, just so you're clear, this is the way that we're going to love our enemies. He gives us deeds. He says, do good to those who hate you. He gives us words Blessing to those who curse you. And he gives us prayers. Praying for those who would abuse you. Each imperative that Jesus gives us here is in the present tense. Implying this, that these types of deeds, words, and prayers are to be a regular part of the Christian rhythm of how we are to love the world around us. Radical love. That we who are disciples of Jesus are to regularly do good to those who hate us. To bless those who would curse us. And to actually pray for those who would abuse us. Now, doing good involves action. It's it's an actual um, action that we would do to other people. We would do good to those who would hate us. While blessing and praying involves our hearts. So it's not just a begrudging, 
okay, I'll do good for them and then they'll finally get it. No, he gets to our even hearts that we would bless them with our words and they would intercede for them with our hearts and that we would do good with our hands. Jesus is teaching our entire life about how we are to love our enemies. It involves our hands and our hearts. He doesn't just let us off the hook by saying you've got to do a few things, but your heart is unattached. He gets to the heart of the matter. He gets to our hearts, as he always does, doesn't he? Uh, And this is the kind of love, this radical love, is the love that Jesus has shown the world. It's a love that flows from the heart of Christ, that its end result we get to see most prominently displayed on the cross where he reconciled enemies back to himself. You know who those enemies are? You and I. Enemies of God in our sin. And Jesus loves his enemies to the uttermost, that he went to the cross to reconcile enemies that we now become sons and daughters of the king. That's the heart of Christ. And here at the beginning of his ministry, as he's gathering his disciples, he's giving them this worldview, this gospel lens by which they're to view the world. And that's Luke's first commandment that he gives to us with the word love. And it's Jesus loving his enemies, teaching us to love our enemies. It's a radical call. Now, question that uh, poses after you kind of, this settles into our heart a little bit. Well, who are our enemies? Well, that's easy. Texas A&M fans, right? I mean, it's just a no-brainer. Oh, I didn't get hissed at. Okay, good. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. What's he talking about here? Is it like rivalries? Is it like just little spits and spats? Or is it like when you have little disagreements with people? Is it like it's my team versus their team? Is this, the, is this what he's getting at here? I don't think Jesus is talking about rivalries. I don't think he's talking about little, uh, little silly things that we often make into really big things. But I think Jesus, he doesn't, he doesn't come out and say it per se here, but I think they can be personal enemies that disagree with your stance on the gospel and who Jesus is and what you find most important in the world and who, as we said last week, is your greatest treasure, that there will be opposition against that. It could be uh, political, maybe. Could we live in a world as believers in Christ where Republicans and Democrats would love one another? What a message of love that might be to the world. Because our love as Christ followers would trump our love of our political affiliations. I don't know. I mean, how, that could be, that's crazy, right? You're like, what kind of church is this? I don't know. Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter here. But I think the most pointed application as you think about the context that his disciples uh, are about to walk into that he's preparing them for is as they walk into the world and that they would love those who would oppose them because they are going to be heralds of the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and Jesus is going to demonstrate 
in the Gospel of Luke as we continue on. He's going to show his love for all these different groups of people who normally were opposed. He's going to show love to the Gentiles. He's going to show love to the Samaritans. He's going to show love to the other enemies of Israel. And it's going to be so radical. It's going to be so uh, jarring for what would be normative in his world. And he's calling his followers to love with the kind of love that he has as well. He will be a revolutionary example for us. And so as we deal with those who are enemies of the faith, who are contrary to the gospel, those who seek to abuse or malign or oppose Christians, what are we supposed to do? What is our response? What is Jesus getting at here? Our heart's posture would be that our enemies would change and we wouldn't be resentful even when they don't, that we would continue to love. We would continue to display and demonstrate gospel love to them in hopes that God may soften their hearts and save them as well as he has saved us, an enemy of God. Um, Enemies are to be prayed for, to be blessed, to be taken to the Father in prayer. And I think when we do that, it begins to change our hearts toward them. It begins to melt our hearts to have a heart that he wants us to have. Not a us versus them mentality, but that we've been given the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has saved us and rescued us from our sin that so easily entangled us. And now he sends us out that we would be ambassadors of this great message of love through the hope we have in Jesus Christ. And our heart's desire and prayer and longing would be that more would come to experience the saving grace and faith through Jesus that we experienced. And that would become our motivation, even to our very enemies. Now, notice the examples. Do good to those who hate you. This is not a new concept in the scriptures. Jesus is not just making up something brand new. This is all over the heart of God through the Old Testament and the New Testament. Go all the way back to Exodus 23, verse 4. Uh, he's, he, he, the story is talking about if you come across one of your enemy's oxen or his donkey wandering off from his field, you are to return it even to your enemy. Remember that today as you see any of your enemy's oxen, right? Thank you. That's a pastor's joke. I got one or two laughs. Good. Proverbs 25. If your enemy is hungry, what do you do? You give them food to eat. Paul quotes this in Romans uh, chapter 12 when he says, Overcome evil by doing good. First John tells us we should not be surprised that the world hates us. Well, why do they hate, why do they hate us? Well, because some desire darkness versus the light. Some are also attracted to the gospel. Some are attracted to righteousness. And some were to pray those that are opposed to it. We're to pray that they might be saved and they may come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as we're articulating and preaching the gospel and as we're doing deeds of love and kindness to those that are even opposed to the gospel. So our response is to do good. God wants to be gracious to them and to bless them. And then he takes it even a step further and says, pray for them too. Um, Now we need to go to the whole of Scripture again as we understand what is happening here. Pray for those who abuse you. 
This is certainly one of those that we need to get understanding from the all of Scripture. I don't believe Jesus is teaching us here that there shouldn't be any punishment for injustice or abuse. I don't believe that's what Jesus is getting at here. Um, Paul alludes to this text, like I said earlier in Romans 12, and he follows his his, uh, reference to this passage in Luke 6 with Romans 13. In Romans 13, he talks about the legitimate use of the authority by the government and the ability to wield the sword. So justice for those who have been abused. So we know that reporting a crime is not evil. In fact, it is a moral responsibility. It's also an act of compassion, and failing to do so is evil. So he's not excusing abusers. He's not letting them off the hook. But I think what we need to keep in mind here, again, as we read this, is the idea of persecution against us for our faith. And we see that on display in various places, and we see it most poignantly when Jesus is hanging on the cross. And what does he say? Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Or go to Acts, when Stephen is being stoned for his faith, the very first Christian martyr standing up for his faith. Stephen says this as he's being killed for his faith, as persecution is bearing down. Father, do not hold this sin against them. He pleads for his killers that they might know God through Christ. Amazing love. And Peter gives us instruction in 1 Peter 2, 21 and 23, to follow after Christ's example who did not revile in return. Um, And then Jesus gives us another example that's amazing. He's tells us to offer our other cheek. This is a famous statement. If someone hits you on one cheek, offer them the other cheek. Now again, um, contextually here, what I believe that Jesus is getting at um, is talking more about insult than injury. Um, I think what he's getting at here is not that we would just uh, chronically endure physical violence against us, when it's bearing down on us, but I think he's getting more at uh, insult than injury here. Um, (coughs) So the application is not when you leave here and someone insults you and hits you that you just let them keep hitting you over and over again because I learned that in church, right? I think it it is okay at times to engage in self-defense that we could protect ourselves from injury as it becomes, as it's bearing down on us. I think this is more insult than injury that Jesus is getting at. There's an old preacher story, uh, amuse me again. I know I haven't been getting a lot of laughs in the last couple, but I'm going to go for it anyway. Uh, It goes like this. Um, There's an old (coughs) Irish boxer, and he became a preacher, and he's out at, an old, at a revival, tent revival, this, this Irish boxer. And uh, he has an interesting take on this text. He's preaching and these hecklers came by yelling at him, making fun of him, uh, throwing stuff at him. And he came down after preaching the gospel and he engages these hecklers who are obviously a little agitated by all that he has to say. And one of them hits him on one side of the face. 
And he says, Jesus says to offer the other cheek, and he offers them the other one, and he punches them on the other side. And then immediately after that, he knocks all three of them out, and they're all laying there, and everyone's like, what's going on here? He said, well, the Lord gave me no further instruction. <laughs> that one was a lot better. Good. Okay, I still got it. I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is getting at here, right? I think if, if, if you read Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, when you're slapped on the cheek, the, the, the word picture that's given is more of a backhanded slap. It's an insult. It's an insult to what you think, what you believe, and what you stand on. It's talking more about being insulted than it is being injured. And if persecution is the primary thing in mind, that slap elsewhere in Christian context could have been because of you, because of your identity and you following Jesus, you are no longer allowed to even participate in attending the synagogue. So there were many believers who, when they stood on the foundation and the teaching of the gospel, they were removed from the synagogue and could no longer worship because they embraced Christ as Messiah. And so they were insulted by saying, you can't even be in here. It's another example later on in church history that I believe was an insult to their belief in Christ in a form of persecution that came up against them because of their preaching of Christ. And so the point is, is that when you were insulted for preaching the gospel, for your faith, for standing on the foundation of faith, you absorb that insult and you long for that person to be saved and you pray for them to be saved. And you even do acts of kindness for them, that they would see the heart of a believer and be transformed by a radical love that only comes from our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to the issue of lending. He says, offer your tunic, the cloak. Now the cloak uh, was sort of the outer robe, the tunic was worn sort of next to your skin, and Jesus says another radical thing here. If they take your outer garment... Go ahead and give them the other one. Um, now, again, if we take these illustrations just real woodenly, uh, it would be like, well, do we just have to give everyone everything whenever they want it? Would we be left with nothing? Is that what Christ wants for us? That we would give all of our money and all of our things and we would uh, have nothing and we would be naked and poor? Is that the end of this? No, I don't think that's what Christ is getting at here. Um, Jesus is talking here about being generous, not holding our possessions so tightly that we refuse to let them go, that when we see someone that needs something, even when someone takes something from you, you, you wouldn't hold on to it so tightly that you would seek retribution at all costs, that you would just say, you know what, I can just let it go because it's just stuff. My identity isn't found in my stuff, it's rooted in Christ. He's getting to our hearts that you can gladly be open-handed with the things that you have because they're just things. When someone takes your cloak, offer them the tunic too. Would you like this as well? You would go the extra step of displaying radical generosity as the people of God. And when doing so, all of these actions begin to build and build and build and it begins to make enemies of God into friends of God. He's painting a picture of life in the kingdom. Um, 
In fact, the writer of Hebrews, when addressing Christians, he says, when you are persecuted for your faith, he says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew you yourself had a better possession and a more abiding one. In other words, don't hold so tightly to your things. Our home is heaven. Our Savior is Christ. He is our greatest treasure. Hold on to him most tightly, not the things that we chase so often. And then Jesus gives us a couple of principles in verses 30 and 31. Give without expectation of return. And then he gives us the golden rule in verse 30. Um, So give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. So be generous and don't keep score, Christian. Don't just have reciprocal exchanges with people. Uh, If I do this for you, then what are you gonna do for me? If I do this for you, what will you give me in return? Have generous hearts, don't keep score. Are you willing to give up possessions knowing that God owns it all and Jesus is better than it all and not trying to put someone in our debt for our generous giving, but simply to be generous and let it go for the good of that person, just as Jesus became poor for our sake that we would be rich in heaven. And then the golden rule, verse 31. (laughs) excuse me, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Now, it's interesting, he gives this not in the negative form, but in the positive form. Uh, He doesn't say, uh, don't do this so someone doesn't do that to you. And that's kind of, and a good example of that, that's a lot of times how we parent Right? It's like if you have multiple kids, you've had this scenario inevitably happen uh, 187 million times where the, the younger sibling comes up and says, Timmy hit me. And what do you say? Did you hit Timmy first? Yes. Well, don't hit Timmy and he won't hit you back. Right? It's kind of like these reciprocal exchanges where don't do this and then this action won't happen to you. A lot of times that's how we approach these situations. And Jesus is not doing this here. He's flipping the whole world, this whole thing on its head. It's, it's not given in the negative context where it's all about self-preservation. He's not teaching us a rule of self-preservation. Hey, Christian, if you don't do this, this won't happen to you. He's not doing that. He's actually teaching a principle and a lesson to his disciples who would live in this kingdom way of self-sacrifice. He's flipping the whole thing on its head. Not self-preservation. Don't do this, Timmy, and that won't happen to you, but actually self-sacrifice. He puts it in the positive sense. He says, as you wish others would do to you, go and do that to them. Proactively. In other words, it's it's not enough that we abstained from these actions of abusing people or harming people or cursing people that don't believe like us. It's not enough that you just close your mouth and don't, uh, don't get upset with people who disagree with you. 
It's about going out of your way to do well to those who, regardless of how they respond to you, it's about self-sacrifice. It's about giving ourselves to other people for their good because that's consistent with the character of God and the kingdom of God and the new kingdom that Christ is building. Who pours out his grace on the undeserving, who is merciful to the undeserving, who is kind to the undeserving, and who is gracious even to the ungrateful. That's the heart of our God. And this is what Jesus is calling us to. So Christians are not just to be known for what we don't do. We're to be known for what we do, how we live, how we engage with the world around us. We're to be proactive in being a blessing to the world. And that kind of Christianity, church, this radical view of love, this radical way of living changes the world. It really does. N.T. Wright puts it beautifully when talking about this passage. He says, the kingdom that Jesus preached and lives was all about a glorious and absurd generosity. Think about the best thing that you can do for the worst person and go ahead and do it. Think about what you'd really like, what you'd really love someone to do for you. And do it to them. Think about the people whom you are tempted to be nasty to and to be short with and lavish generosity upon them. These instructions have a fresh, he says, spring-like quality. They are all about new Kingdom life bursting out energetically like a flower going, growing through a crack in concrete. How on earth did that get there? God. Only God. That's what it's like as Jesus is painting a picture to be a Christ follower in this world. This unusual, unique, and radical love. How does it happen? God makes it happen through his people. Um, And then Jesus gives us some contrast, some stories here in 32 and 34. He says, if you just operate out of the, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. You bought me some food, now I'll buy you some food. You're no different than the rest of humanity. You're no different than how everyone operates. If you only love those who love you, If you only do good to those who do good to you, you're not showing yourself to be any different than the the way every sinner operates in the world because we all operate in that worldly context. But one of the practical ways to show that we've been transformed by the gospel of grace, that, that, that we can lavishly love even our enemies, That true Christianity lives out of this vision of life that Jesus gives to us. And it blesses the world. And it turns everything upside down. And I think as we grapple with these really hard statements, these really hard truths, it makes us do some self-examination about how we love the world around us, doesn't it? Or it should. How do you love the world? 
How do you love those that oppose you? How do you love those that oppose you standing on a firm foundation of the gospel? Um, How do we do this well? Verse 35 and 36, I think Jesus begins to answer that for us. He draws our attention to the Father. He draws our attention to heaven itself. And it reminds us of the nature of our God. He restates some actions. Verse 35, love your enemies, do good, expect nothing in return. And notice here, it gives us a motivation. Your reward will be great. He points us back that all of our actions in this life are noticed by Christ and recognized in heaven and rewarded in heaven. Why? Because soon heaven will be our reality. Notice another motivation he gives us in 35. And you will be called sons of the Most High. What a beautiful thought. In other words, you'll demonstrate that you're a son or daughter of God by how you love your enemies. That's how you demonstrate to the world that you belong to God. Why is that? Because that's what God has done for us. That's what God has done for you. He has loved his enemies. He put it on display, church. He's broken the hostility between enemies and friends. He's brought peace where there was chaos. He's settled us. He says, I want you to show the world a practical way that you're a Christian by how you love your enemies. Where did that come from? It comes from God because that's what he has done for us in Christ. So he's kind to the ungrateful. Is it easy for us to be kind to those that are ungrateful? No. But he was to us. He brought us faith in Jesus. So, what will empower us to love our enemies? How do we functionally do this? How do we practically do this, church? In short, it's the gospel. It's the gospel. It is by reflecting on the fact that God has dealt mercifully with you in Christ and that he does every day. That he has put his reconciling love on display at the cross. Prior to the cross, he even displayed it where Jesus serves and washes his disciples' feet, even his betrayer's feet. And a few hours after that moment, he would endure all manner of hate and evil and be reviled and spit upon and beaten and mocked. Isaiah prophesied about it in the Old Testament saying that this one, this Messiah to come would be despised, he would be rejected. And this prophecy is all about Jesus, and it says that this one would give his back to those who would strike him over and over again, and Christ did on your behalf. And it says he would give his cheek to those who would tear out his beard, and he did. For you and I, he took abuse, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, And he opens his mouth at the cross and he says, Father, forgive them. So church, may we be amazed at the love of Christ for us, that we were enemies and we were brought near to him. We were reconciled and made whole by this amazing, radical love that Christ has given to us. And now it is that very love that is in us, that is exploding out of us 
that needs to be exemplified by loving our enemies in this world. That we are empowered by Christ through the Holy Spirit who lets us go into this world and in a striking and in a unique and a radical way, we get to put the gospel we preach on display with how we love the world and the world around us, even and especially when they reject it and reject even us that we would keep leaning in with the love of Christ because it, he kept leaning in and keeps leaning in to you and I. Church, let's pray together this morning. Lord, your words strike deep into our hearts and to our souls. They are not easy for us. Uh, they are. They seem so foreign and odd to how everything in our nature wants to operate. But God, I pray for each of us as Christ followers in this room, as kingdom citizens, that you would give us hearts and lives that would be able to live out what Christ is teaching us, that we would be able to, yes, even love our enemies because we, when we were enemies, you made us sons and daughters through the grace, mercy, and kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is by his goodness and his love, Lord, that we now get to go out into our neighborhoods, get to go out into uh, our classrooms, get to go out into our workplaces, onto the ball field, onto all these places that we interact with people who do not think like us, who do not value what we value. And may we, one, be proclaimers of the good news of the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when persecution comes, Lord, may we be quick with deeds of kindness toward those that are against us. And may we pray for those that would even malign us. And when our hearts be for them, that they would come to a saving faith in the one who has saved us and made us now sons and daughters of the king. Make us that people. Only you can do that. In Christ's name, amen. Church, will you stand and worship?